Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. Hi, this is Dan Abuhop. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper on December 19th, 2021. All right. This right? is the last Sunday. show, the last show before Christmas. Right. Right. So we should our musical interviews. Okay. <laughs> I guess. Go for it. No, no. No, no, no. Oh, We've been practicing our singing a lot. Well, I tell you something. We've been now, singing to the kids. We have been singing to the kids. So Frosty this moment. Don't be unfriendly. Um uh, you know, I PC was like it used to be years past. You'd be catching a lot of Christmas specials on television inadvertently. Well, we're not watching conventional television. That's the reason, I guess okay. that's what it is. And we're so. not um we're not driving around in the car listening to radio stations. So, yeah, I'm thinking of television, uh, but we we should be playing more Christmas music. All right. Well, that's okay. what we're going to do as soon as we finish. All right. We'll start playing the Christmas music. We really should start. But that, that's fine. It's worse when you start too early. Well, we haven't And then you're that. sick of the I think we're safe music now. We're safe now. By the time you get to Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but speaking of Christmas, um, there's an article that you found about a bishop in Italy. Yeah, this was shocking to me. The Bishop of Noto. Yeah. I don't know where Noto is. But um, actually, uh, in the um, Basilica of Santissimo Salvatore. That's well said. Um, gave a sermon to actually a bunch of kids about to go on a field trip. Um, and this basic subject of the sermon was that there is no Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it, it was at a ceremony that the kids were inside the uh, Basilica and they were waiting to see Santa in just a few minutes, ride up and horseback up front for something like that. It was a big Santa day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's totally confusing. Well, I mean, yeah, it's more than confusing. I mean, the kids are getting ready for Santa. And uh, this guy, well, this bishop decides that this is the time to make a point. In fact, let's put the Christ back in Christmas, which I can understand. He is a bishop after all. I, I, I can give him that. But uh, he decides to clear this up, to clear this up, not only for the adults, but for the children in the room. He thinks, I guess he believes it was a, it's an important message that the children have to hear. But not everybody agrees with them. I think uh, a lot of the parents were really put off by this. Uh, yeah, the bishop says that Santa has no interest in uh, families strapped for cash, as they say in the article. The red right. color of his coat was chosen by Coca-Cola right. for advertising purposes. Mm -hmm. And uses uh, big soda uses the image to depict itself as an emblem of healthy values. And, uh, you know, it just uh, it's pretty intense about it, saying Father Christmas for Santa Claus was fantastical and never existed. Uh, you know, it seems a little rough. Well, he's rough and he's wrong. I mean, the article goes on to say that uh, the red coat uh, doesn't come from Coca-Cola. Uh, there's some origin of the red coat that goes back to the 19th century. Uh, and Coca-Cola would love to be identified. Uh, with Santa Claus and credited with being the originator of Santa Claus, but uh, it really doesn't have the wherewithal to say that. The 19th century is not, it's not like it's the 14th century. I understand, but it's not Coca-Cola. I mean, I don't know where it comes up with Coca-Cola. Anyway, it's commercial. So, all right. So, um, this is probably not the first time that uh, somebody tried to tell children there is no Santa Claus. It's right. just, it seems incredibly mean. Yeah. Okay. 
especially when they're about to see Santa. Uh, you, you'll be, uh, the audience should be relieved to know that the children were still quite excited yeah. once they went outside and uh, Santa rode up, uh, apparently on uh, a horse, took a seat on a red throne, handed out pencils, candy, and other gifts. Uh, they were happy, said the yeah, the, stuff the with speech him. wore off. But here's my question: Why, I, why did he do it? Well, he does it because he he has a very narrow focus, and I can understand that he's a bishop, and he thinks that this is an important message for the purpose of uh, the religion. The I, I mean, he poo pooed the um, idea that the kids believed in Santa. They said, "Are you are you kidding me?" He said, uh, "You know." Yeah. Uh, if if we knew, he said he knew at age four there was no Santa. Well, he's very so smart these are seven year olds. They have said, phones. And if if he said if I knew when I was a kid, with you know these kids with their phones, etc., and uh, you know they've known forever. Well, look, this is cutting through it. Now, this is not a guy who has a great sense of humor. Okay, that's not his business. Uh, it should be his business. Like, he clearly doesn't feel it. You know, it's funny. There were letters that came after this. I didn't show them to you. Oh, you didn't and, show me the letters. Well, I, I didn't have them. But uh, some child development psychologist writes, and it says the idea of little kids believing in Santa Claus is extremely valuable for their development. It's the notion of uh, being able to have an imaginary thought in their head, be able to relate to it, to create, to do it, you know, a virtual presence. It's all very positive. It's all very positive for the development of their brains. It's a, great thing. Okay. So this thing, is, uh, among other things, uh, the statement by the bishop is anti-child development, but he's not in the child development business. Okay? He's he's in whatever business the uh, Catholic Church is in. Well, yeah, the, putting the Christ back in Christmas exactly. business. But there was also a little bit that I thought was kind of a sidebar yeah. about the EU saying to play down Christmas. Oh, I didn't catch that. Okay. Um, in November, a conservative Italian newspaper, the, the conservative Italians are upset yeah. uh, about uh, the treatment of Christmas, discovered that an, an EU commissioner's office had drafted guidelines for an internal correspondence calling for a more inclusive, gender-neutral, less holiday-specific language. Not everyone celebrates the Christian holidays, and not all Christians celebrate them on the same dates, read the document. Christmas time can be stressful. Holiday times can be stressful. Okay? And so, the, I guess the EU, the, the idea was the EU could, encouraging their members to be more yeah. inclusive and not so Christmas-focused. Yeah. Uh, but... I also have to, I note that uh, this is from a draft for guidelines. So, uh, you know, it just seems like more well, you know, um, right-wing uh, crankiness. You know, well, it's about... crank. Look, I, I, I'll, let me jump ahead to something. I'll, I'll manage the order. Um, there's an article about a guy named Cy Spielberg who is credited with being the inventor or at least the promoter of what we see as the modern artificial Christmas. And apparently his story is that um, uh, he's still alive, he's in his mid-90s. Uh, he's a Jewish gentleman who's growing up in the Lower East Side. Uh, when uh, Nazis came to power in Germany, he enlisted at the age of 17 to fight Hitler. He became a uh, bomber pilot. Uh, he ran 35 missions uh, against uh, Germany. He was uh, captured behind enemy lines at the very end of the war. He managed to escape. 
somewhat harrowing story, but he, he got back. Um, he then had a career which he felt was kind of stunted. He felt that he, he is Jewish and uh, he felt that he was discriminated against as a Jew. He was never offered any kind of opportunity as an airline pilot. Others were feeling about his situation. But in any event, he got some low-level jobs, but one of them happened to be in, in, in a manufacturing facility where he was a sort of a technical person, uh, which was experimenting with the notion of making artificial Christmas trees by this in the 1950s. And they were going to give it up. They, they weren't doing very well with it. They were repurposing machines. At that time, what was popular in artificial Christmas trees was the aluminum wool. And I didn't realize yes, this. In terms of place. Yeah, I understand. But I know that, that those were the first ones that were popular, according to this oh, yeah. article in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Look nothing like trees. Right. But they're kind of, they look cool. They're right? festive. Yeah, they're rat pack oriented. Uh, there, there's a lot of cool with them. Well, there, there, are other, there were other artificial trees. Right. But um, I think you're talking about being able to mass produce right. a successful product. Right. So what happens is he keeps keeps at it and keeps at it, and he kind of repurposes these brush machines. They were making these elaborate brushes, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't understand, quite frankly, but in different, <laughs> different colors. And he was able to come up with a machine that would make Christmas trees uh, in an economical way. In other words, they could churn them out one every four minutes, and they looked like well, think of the bottle brush, yeah. you know, so it has the lines all the way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that, that would, you know, in some ways approximate yeah. a branch of a fir tree with the... Well, that, I guess that's what he yeah, was doing. the needles coming so out. So he, he, he jiggers this thing, and they start making these trees, and they start selling it. Apparently, there was a huge success. Most Christmas trees now, apparently, according to this article, again, are artificial. Most, according to this article, are based on the kind of manufacturing process that he uh, developed. And what he did is he ended up starting his own company, making his own trees, and he became a millionaire, a multi-millionaire, mm-hmm. out of a clear blue. Mm-hmm. And people say to him, isn't this odd, like, uh, you know, uh, a Jewish guy making his big fortune, uh, pushing Christmas trees. Isn't this really weird? And he, he said, Christmas isn't a Christian holiday. It's a pagan holiday. Christmas trees are a pagan object. Okay. Not so much Christmas is a pagan holiday, but Christmas trees are a pagan object. There's nothing religious. Um, and uh, there's something to that uh, in, a, in a positive way. I mean, it's just a matter of good feeling and spirit and all that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's what I think you and I are reacting to when we read what the bishop is saying, because he's not recognized. He's not able to uh, separate uh, whatever Christmas is in that kind of general sense from his religious mission. I mean, you can have both, right? Yes. So, um, that's no, why I think the bishop no, and we've known other Jewish guys who made money off of well, selling Christmas right. trees. No one's going to understand this, but I well, used to sell that would be you. Yeah, you I put Christmas. myself in law school selling Christmas trees, but only in December. It's not like I was selling them in the summer and not making any sales. I had the wisdom to concentrate on December. So, yes. anyway, it's, it's funny that Christmas uh, real trees, trees I sold real trees so much. Uh, Controversy. Yeah, but people you know. people want to get uh, excited. Yeah, people get, people get upset about the stress. People get upset about everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's this true. Is, anything that that creates any kind of emotion level, including strong emotion, they're ready to. Why is it we always feel good when the kids believe in something magical? Yeah. And imagine That's one of the great things. Very. Every once in a while, we hear that that sound from uh, downtown or something like that, you and I, from New Hope, and we say to ourselves... Of the sirens, the Santa Forget the sirens, just the, the train. Oh, the, oh, the Santa train. And is that yeah. the Santa train? And that yeah. is a train that goes... Something from, cheering about From it. New Hope to Ivyland, yeah. I think. 
Yeah. And it's a train that the kids get on. And there's a Santa figure in it, and it's a two-car train. And you can go by there, and the kids are super excited, these little kids, to get on the train. We have some drinks, and you see Santa yeah. there, and the train is like a steam engine. Very exciting. And maybe the um, bishop is afraid that kids will have unrealistic expectations. I mean, it's always good yeah. I mean, to believe in – it feels good to believe in somebody who loves you and is going to bring you presents. Yeah. Right. Maybe saying not going to happen in real life. Yeah. No, I don't think. I don't think he's thinking about. It. He's got his own mission. Uh, you know, good for him. I mean, it, I don't. He's entitled to that. It, you know, it's religious uh, devotion on his part. I'm not going to question. That's not great. Um. So there's an article about uh, Steve Sondheim, as there is every day. Um, which is good. I mean, it's fun listening to this, you know, read and listen to this stuff about Sondheim. Uh, it's just surprising that there's so much. And this is kind of... Well, first of all, before you say this, yeah. we should note on a Sondheim note, yeah. our buddy Dixon yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. headed into New York at a very nice dinner at a nice restaurant with a friend, then yeah. hightailed it over to see Company, Right. Okay, which he was very excited about. And, of course, and, uh, and uh, we get a text from him. About 10 minutes in, he said, they are closing the show. They are canceling today's uh, performance right. because of uh, food poisoning. One of the actors got food poisoning. And that is because that never happens. And so there's all kind of speculation that it's really COVID, but they didn't want to say COVID. I don't uh, think so. Anyway. I, that has not been borne out. It's, I think it's food poisoning. One of the actors said, How crazy is that? One of the actors that I just got thrown up on. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm out of here. Well, um, and the, supposedly, uh, the, part of the problem, you, you know, everybody's saying, well, don't they have an understudy? Yeah. And the, the problem may be, no, they don't. Uh, because everybody's stretched so thin yeah. with all the COVID uh, going on and people having to take time off. Uh, anyway, that's what I've heard. Well, there are not all, enough understudies we're, we're, around. But we're, that's all speculation. We don't even know the actor who was afflicted. Apparently the actor was fine uh, me almost soon afterwards, and they had the performance go on the next day. So it's not like a serious illness. So uh, I don't know. It, the word understudy does come to mind. Yeah. I, I don't get it. So anyway, all right, back to your story about no, well, Sondheim. So this is Sondheim. Um, they've had an interesting story. Uh, it comes up in a funny way. Of Sondheim's view of Rent, the musical, which was written by Jonathan Larson now. Of course, uh, Jonathan Larson is the subject of a tick, tick, boom. Jonathan Larson being the uh, songwriter uh, and show producer that did uh, tick, tick, boom and uh, and Rent. And uh, famously and unhappily, he was Rent was uh, his big breakthrough. Uh, and he, I think, passed away from an aneurysm uh, immediately after the performance of the opening night of Rent. And um, Red obviously being a very successful show. Well, apparently, um, uh, Larson was, you know, in his self described as he was looking for a new Broadway, trying to find his own path different from the establishment, establishment, frankly, being Steve. And uh, everyone McDonald writes this article in the Times. And what it is, it, it, very interesting, she basically uh, just puts forward her a synopsis. Uh, excerpts from an interview she did 
with Steve Sondheim shortly after the opening of Rent, asking him about Jonathan Larson and asking him what he thought of Rent. And what's interesting about that is, uh, this is a pros and a time. It's nice to have that photograph exactly what Sondheim was thinking then. And also because Sondheim's not very sentimental about stuff like this. Uh, we know that his personality was, he kind of tells you what he thinks. Uh -huh. He almost can't help her. Mm -hmm. So instead of him going on about what a great loss this was, what a fantastic musical this was, he doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. And notwithstanding that Sondheim was a supporter of Larson, and I mean that in the literal sense, as the article explains, uh, Sondheim helped Larson with some advice and helped him get several grants uh, along his early career so that he could continue writing and produce his early shows, including a show called Superbia. Uh, and when asked about uh, what he thought about Larson as a composer and what he thought about Rent, he goes into some detail saying, well, you know, he's kind of looking to find his way. He kind of gets lost. Uh, he thought that Boho Days was was the same thing as Tick, Tick, Boom, was kind of a little bit better than Superbia. He was looking for more progress when he went to see Rent. And then Sondheim was asked what he thought about Rent. Uh, and instead of saying Rent is a great accomplishment, Sondheim said, quote, I think it is a work in progress. Story focus is it. He wanted to put in everything, and including the kitchen sink, and he did. It suffers from that. Mm -hmm. So uh, he didn't uh, love it. Um, basically, you know, he's asked, um, he says, look, uh, people, uh, you know, it's not much reading the quote at this point, but he, he says, you know, he passed away, so the show has become a legend. Uh, Larson passed away, but, you know, I still see him, so Larson is a guy who had a lot more development uh, to experience. Um, and uh, as he put it, um, the, the question was, did you have any idea Rent would be such a success? And Sondheim says, no, I didn't know that Jonathan would die. That made it a myth. So he's pretty clear-eyed about it and not entirely uh, positive, which is uh, interesting. I mean, uh, um, Sondheim, you know, doesn't, not a sentimental guy. So I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that, except uh, I was surprised. So this contrasts with uh, the week before when there was all these... Uh excerpts from emails encouraging various well, uh, up-and-comers. I think he was, yeah, yeah it does, it does a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was a very, it was a super positive, yeah, uh, yeah, super kind positive. Of a, you know, what a great mentor, etc. Well, no, no. So he's still a great mentor. This doesn't mean he's not a great mentor. Yes, I agree. I agree, but still... Uh, well, here's how I can synthesize the two. I think the letters that he wrote uh, about some other productions, including productions of his own stuff, quite frankly, mm -hmm. like Into the Woods, uh, I think that's his year. He liked them. He liked those more than he liked Rent. He just didn't like Rent then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's not going to make up the, make something up. Right. Right. Well, so let's face it. Sondheim doesn't always know it's going to succeed. Oh, no, 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 no. He, he, he says, I understand it's a success. He's got it. But he's not going to judge things in terms of whether it's successful or not. And mm -hmm. many of his shows, of course, were not successful. I mm -hmm. wonder, uh, I'm sure, they're favorite many of Sondheim's shows. It turns out how long it ran and how much money it made. Possibly yeah. as an aggregate. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. fantastic success. Yeah. yeah. Tremendous long-running show. Yeah. It wasn't the Sondheim's taste. So, anyway, I thought that was interesting. Just a, a more sort of, um, I don't know, nuanced look at the man. Yeah, it's a look at the man. It's a look at, uh, yeah, it's a reminder that Sondheim had his own criteria and had his own principles. And it wasn't going to be driven by popular taste so much. And, uh, you know, he applied that to Rent. And uh, notwithstanding the tragedy of Jonathan Larson passing, he wasn't going to mince words. Right. So, um, sticking with the musicals yeah. on Broadway theme, of course, uh, Dixon also had tickets to musicals. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Dixon's with the Hugh theme. Jackman. Dixon is, Dixon's the theme. And yeah. uh, what's her name? Sutton Foster. Sutton Foster. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so that's uh, that's going to reopen fairly soon, right? Doesn't that uh, happen in December? Yeah. And anyway, yeah. there's an article about Music Man by Amanda Morris in the New York Times. Right. Uh, that um, actually is an interesting story about the um, little kid character. Yeah. Is, it, is it that marrying the librarian's little brother or nephew? Or what? I don't even know. Yeah, but she has some relation to it. Right. And um, anyway, apparently the character was originally a uh, disabled child. And the character's name was Jim Peru, and he was nonverbal and had lost the use of his arms, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I mean, it's kind of confusing because he also goes around in a um, wheelchair. And he was, um, you know, uh, a key aspect of the play, of the musical. Right. Uh, right up until very close to uh, the opening, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it really... Um, anyway, at a certain point, uh, they, uh, somebody decides the... It's felt that it's just too complicated and depressing, you know, a story mm-hmm. uh, to include the disabled child. Because it, part of it is, I guess, that uh, the townspeople discriminated against him. He ends up living in a basement instead of in his family yeah, home. Yeah, that's a really darker story. And, and so, and it's, uh, but he's brought out by this music man. Right. Okay. So there's still, you know, it, it you know, um, by the music man yeah. um, sort of befriending the character in the you know the way the show looks now. Right. It still is the key to getting through to Marion, the librarian, who is the one person who's kind of negative, yeah. you know, who is seen through the scam uh, kind of thing. But uh, so that, you know, vestiges of the character survive, but not as a disabled... Um, yeah, I mean, just, just to clarify, you're right. The character is in the uh, play in the movie. He's played by Ron Howard in the movie. Yeah. Famously, he sings the song Gary, Indiana. Yeah. And he's the cute uh, either younger cousin or just younger friend of Marion. And uh, the music man does extend himself to get in that scores points with Marion. And I think what they did, if you remember in, in the, from the movie and in, in the play, um, they have him sort of uh, as a stuttering, very shy kid who doesn't speak to anybody. So they it's, sort of give him right. some they disability. They something the yeah. way of disability. And it's only when uh, he's exposed to music through the music man that his personality is brought to light. 
and he sings that song Gary Indiana to show that uh, the music man is part of the band. So that that becomes basically the replacement, or it evolves into that. It's a much softer theme right. than the idea that he was really terribly disabled and and frankly subject to some kind of discrimination by the town. Yeah, a memo was found. Yeah. Um, from uh, written by an employee of, they believe by an employee of the producer that says, stating that physical disability in a child is impossible to view in any terms but pity and sentiment. The problem is to find some other form of disability besides physical. Oh, well, there you go. So then they went to some kind of arrested development. But there were songs, uh, and the kid yeah. had songs, and, it, and there's actually. A scene where yeah. a scene where the child does sing, yeah. even though he's nonverbal, right. and it was meant to indicate that within you know even though he's nonverbal within his head he has all this um, sort of conversation, all these thoughts yeah. to uh, so, bring yeah. out. And they had, do have a quote here from uh, people who are kind of very focused on disability issues, and someone's the managing director of the National Disability Theater saying that that was an opportunity missed. It would have been something. They developed this character in the 1950s uh, in a very, very popular musical. Although I will say that the woman who wrote the article, um, I don't know what planet she's from exactly, but uh, she seems to know very little about the music man itself. So she writes near the end to explain what the music man is. She says, the music, uh, in the end, the version of the music man without uh, the character was a hit uh, and won five Tony Awards. It's since been criticized for making light of its con artist's problematic, predatory behavior. But there's a scene in which he follows Marion home and tries to seduce her. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, what? <laughs> is, that, is, is that how we're summing up the music man in one sentence? Uh, you know, this... Uh, none you, of mean, that. you mean we shouldn't like a sadder but wiser girl for me? Right, a sadder but wiser girl would be, shouldn't uh, be listening to anathema right. because, uh, you know, it's, it's not cool. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, it's hard. Uh, you can understand that that would be very complicated, having the character with that level of disability. But it, it would have been interesting. It would have been interesting because it really would have added something to the music man himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very easy to music man. He's basically unavoidable. He can't stop himself from being charming. He just exudes charm. Yeah. And he just extends himself to everybody in his path, including his own child. Uh, and that's fine, and that's light and breezy. But to, the, to see him uh, extend himself to the disabled child, that no one else is extending himself, yeah. would separate him out, would be a, a different quality. Mm -hmm. that I think would add a lot of depth to that character. And that, to me, is the opportunity miss. Uh, you know, I shouldn't say opportunity miss. They did pretty well with what they had. Predatory behavior notwithstanding. Um, but that would have been interesting. But it, it also shows you how in going through these workshops and out-of-town stuff, what kind of tremendous turns, yeah, uh, twists and turns, the development of the story can yeah. have. Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure... That when they had the success they had, they said, oh, thank God. Thank God we didn't go in that other direction. The article, the one uh, the one instrument the child is able to play, I guess, is the triangle. Oh, okay. I, I don't know how. But yeah. um, uh, and the show for a while was called The Silver Triangle. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh, wow. So that, that was a huge turn. That must yeah. have been a hard decision. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, okay. So I was always going to talk about, oh, there's, let me talk about something. Let me talk about this. Uh, <laughs> there's an article about doomsday. What do I mean by doomsday? Well, this is, this is, uh, this article begins uh, by a person named Dennis Orbeye, which I think is important. We'll come back to that. This is not a Christmas article? No, this is not a Christmas article. Okay? Brace yourself. Um, he starts talking about the new Netflix film, Don't Look Up, in which a pair of astronomers, played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, come to the uh, realization, they're scientists, you can believe that, that a planet-killing comet is headed straight for Earth, and it's up for them to publicize it. That's the theme. All right, so it's a comedy, right? Well, I'm, I'm getting to that. Okay. And uh, they don't play it that straight or that uh, dramatic, because what happens is that the President of the United States, Meryl Streep, is only concerned about her poll numbers, how is this going to affect her polling. Uh, television talk show hosts ridicule the scientists. We haven't seen the movie done reading here. Uh, and mostly people just don't take the scientists seriously. They don't want to hear any bad news from scientists. And I guess that's supposed to be some kind of allegory for the world we live in about people right. not wanting to credit scientists at various uh, um, Well, what, what Dennis Overby writes is that uh, he actually had a real-life experience of this sort. And you're saying, well, how is that? Well, uh, in March of 1998, he was the new deputy science editor of the New York Times, right? And in his first weeks on the job, um, he said nobody knew him. His direct boss, the science editor, had taken the week off, and Overby was in charge. And on March 11th, he walked into a 4.30 p.m. news meeting where people pitched stories. Uh, and he's, he had with him a late-breaking story by the distinguished reporter Malcolm Brown, uh, which was, the end of the world is upon us. Okay. And everyone else says, well, what are you talking about? Well, it turns out that the fellow um, named Brian Marsden, who was the director of the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams, that's correct, I guess, um, which was the clearinghouse for cosmic discoveries, uh, was a person who kept track of comets and asteroids, and he had just calculated a recently discovered asteroid, a mile-wide rock, um, was on a path that would come within 30,000 miles of Earth in October 2028, and there was a small but very real chance that it would hit the planet. Right. Mm -hmm. So here's this young guy, hardly knows anybody. He comes in with a story, and uh, they're looking at him like he's out of his mind, and he's saying, well, look, I, I'm telling you, it's Malcolm Brown wrote it. It's based in the sky and Brian Morrison. Brian Morrison's a real person. And here it is. Uh, and uh, they wrote the story. They wrote the story in the New York Times. And then the headline is, Asteroid is expected to make a pass close to Earth in 2028. Now, Times hedges its bets in the article. Subheading, scientists are careful not to define odds of any collusion. collusion but, you know. The article was saying that, that, that it's a very high risk that it's going to collide and end the world. Yeah. Uh, well, it turns out that uh, the next day, uh, more information came through. 
including some footage of the asteroid being spotted some years before, better location data then. And uh, Morrison had made a mistake in the calculation. Okay. And uh, it wasn't going to be within 30,000 miles of Earth. It was going to be 600,000 miles away. Okay. And therefore, not going to be in danger. And Morrison said, oops. <laughs> I don't know what the Times wrote uh, to follow up. Uh, the following day, the New York Post headline on the front page of the paper was, Kiss Your Asteroid Goodbye. <laughs> So uh, I thought you were going to say something that uh, he was under pressure from some political some politicians not to print the story because well, it was too no, negative. No, no, no. He was not under pressure. but right, uh, So it's not exactly the same thing. I didn't say it was the same thing. Right, he right. thought it was the same thing. Okay, right. it, it brought home to him all right. that this was... You got anything else? Well, what they came up with in response to this, yes. the government uh, put together an agency that would uh, track asteroids. It still exists to this day. They spend $150 million a year tracking asteroids. Oh, thank you. And uh, Brian Marsden, who passed away in 2010, never apologized much. Because he said, look, I think this was a good thing. It raised awareness. And we got this agency going. We've been tracking asteroids right. ever right. since. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that's a moving, harrowing moving, experience. Moving right along. Well, okay. Moving right along. I was going to say something. Oh, what do you talk about? Uh, no. Gabriel, no? You don't want to talk about Gabriel? You do your Peloton. Okay. Well, there's not a lot to say. I mean, here's the article that we all knew would appear when uh, it looked like uh, COVID was behind us. Of course, the irony is perhaps it's not. Is that a Peloton or a close right? And uh, what that is about is sure enough is everybody rushed out and bought a Peloton um, when uh, COVID was upon us because they couldn't go to the gym or uh, didn't want to leave their house in some cases. And they were going to exercise and bond with people virtually, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, one could have predicted this, and some of us did. Well, it turns out that uh, people uh, stopped using their Pelotons at a certain point because they got tired of them. And uh, certainly once they could go back to the gym, forget it. And now all these Pelotons are available on Facebook Marketplace. And instead of... At a fraction? Uh, yeah, they say that they went for about 2400 retail, and they're going for about 1200 now. So I guess that's a fraction. That's 50% off. Yeah. Uh, and um, not a huge surprise. And they interview a few people. They don't give a lot of information. But they say literally it's used as a clothes rack. It's in my apartment, and I hang my pants on it. I hang my, uh, you know, whatever. Well, they, you know, um, sadly, yeah. New York Times had another article this week about studies have been done that exercise doesn't really help you lose weight. Oh, really? Yeah. Another one? Another one. It doesn't help you lose weight? How yeah, is that apparently, apparently, people who uh, have, uh, you know, it's, I um, I hate these articles because it's like every week it's a different yeah, uh, right. reason not to try. Yeah. But um, people have lost a lot of weight. Your metabolism slows down tremendously. Yeah. All right. And um, apparently with people who exercise a great deal uh, after losing weight, their metabolism is even more soft. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, nonetheless, people who exercise uh, don't gain back quite as much weight uh -huh. as people who have lost. This is this is drastic oh, losses okay. of weight. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, but um, you know, uh, exercise is not really uh, the best tool for weight loss. It says not eating. I think probably. Well, that is true. Uh, that apparently uh, is true. Yeah. 
So, um, I mean, that's a little depressing. But exercise does do other things oh, sure. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as we know, right. if your exercise is ballroom dancing, it uh, <laughs> you know, helps you uh, maintain your brain health. In addition to yeah, exercise, physical health, yeah, right. something. Yeah, we, we can talk about this forever because we're not uh, experts. Yeah. But um, so, uh, and uh, so there you have that. Uh, but uh, you know, the Peloton. Well, it seems like a fun toy. Yeah, I think it's cool. I've always enjoyed the Peloton. I've only used it a couple, three times, but it's fine. Well, we have a nice exercise bike. It's good. It makes you feel good. It's still, yeah, it's good. and we have a window instead of a screen. Um, so there you have it. So um, this will end on an interesting story yes. uh, about uh, Thomas Edison's piano. So apparently Thomas uh, Edison was deaf and he could hear the piano by biting down on it. Okay, I don't know what you call. Well, let's, the, let's be uh, more the, precise because people think he's going to take a, a side bite of the piano. He basically, there's a picture of a fellow doing what he Edison must have forward. done. You lean forward on the sort of the bridge area above the center of the piano and sink your teeth into it. And it was Edison's view that he could feel the vibrations when he, the piano when he did this. And he got this, he got a sensation very similar to hearing the notes. And that's the way he would listen to his playing of the piano. Yes. So he paid $725 for a Steinway in 1890. And uh, recently, uh, someone uh, actually bought it. Yeah, the Steinway is still with us. The, yeah, so, uh, you know, this guy who, uh, you know, collects Steinways. Yeah. And uh, he paid $45,000. Well, that's a great story. First of all, what? we all know that a Steinway that's almost 100 years old or more than 100, you don't get $45,000. Only forty-five thousand dollars because it's the Edison, right? Yeah. Because it's Edison's. And number two, the guy who buys it knows the story but doesn't know the details. Uh, but he gets it, and sure enough, they find for him. They locate the tooth mark, the teeth marks. He no, I don't think mark. he knew the story. I think the guy he took it to 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 uh, well, fix he, it up. He wouldn't have paid forty-five thousand unless he knew it was Edison's. Uh, he didn't know about the teeth. He knew he knew it was Edison's. He knew it was Edison's. He didn't know that he takes it to someone to get it right. fixed up. Yeah. Okay. And it, oh, the the part that Edison bit into is called the lock rail. Yeah. Okay. okay. The strip of wood above the keys. Right. Right. And um, he takes it to charge Fro Charles Fromer, yeah. a musician and uh, Edison aficionado yeah. who knows the story. He sees the beat up. He says, "I, you know, uh, it." He said, "Those are Edison's." Marks, it's almost like Edison is in the room, yeah, with us, yeah. Um, and so they, um, he does kind of test it out. He puts a little piece of wood over that area and bites down himself, and he says, "It's an interesting sensation." Yeah. Okay, and uh, fortunately, um, uh, the guy who bought it, uh, Mr. Friedman, his wife happens to be a um, dental hygienist, and she looked at the mark. She said, "Oh yeah." Those are definitely incisors. Yeah. And so, at least we know. Well, that's, that, how do you like that? How do you like that guest coming over? You show them the piano and they say it's that's, Edison. Uh, Edison how do you know? How do you know? Well, you see his teeth marks right over there. Well, they, 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 you know, they're wondering, is there any DNA material left in the, in the crevices? They could have I, I think they have enough proof. I think uh, I would have no problem if I owned that piano to tell people. Uh, 
right, so we just this is part of you know this is something we could look into. <laughs> in terms of some of our things that we're trying to sell, they're a little beat up. If yeah, you can find the you know, marks. find a good mythology yeah. to go with yeah. uh, these uh, marks, it might raise the value quite a bit. I obviously. Right. Okay, we'll Always looking for yes. the niche. Yes. Okay. Uh, anyway, we've we've uh, got to get back to uh, our day job, watching the grandchildren and uh, holiday music, right? And holiday music. Let's do a playlist. Oh, that's a technical challenge. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, this is Tamsin Granger and Dan Abbey. The Tamsin and Dan read the papers. See you next week. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you.